0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Once again, I'm going to reach back into the vault for one of my favorite Axe Files conversations. This one with Tom Hanks, the remarkable actor, but also just an incredibly interesting guy here in this conversation. He talked about his upbringing, which was not what you'd expect from a wholesome, all-American guy. Had a lot of challenges that he worked through and ultimately led him to find community in theater. We also talked history, about which he is very, very fluent, including the history of World War II. And just a side note, Tom and his wife Rita Wilson were two of the early celebrities to report COVID-19. They've since recovered from it and we wish them the best. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tom Hanks, recorded in 2017. Tom Hanks, great to be with you. I I really, what's interesting to me is how do you become Tom Hanks? How does Tom Hanks become tom hanks because i did a little reading about your life i mean people look at you you're warm you're uh you're you're garrulous you're kind of an american icon and they say well he must have grown up with ward and june cleaver i mean he must be like yeah. with wally oh, yeah. and the beaver your childhood wasn't like that
2: no my no we my parents uh, the joke is they pioneered the marriage dissolution laws for the state of california you know <laughs> it's my dad Janet Amos and Zsa, Zsa Gabor all had a lot of uh, divorces between the, <laughs> between them uh but i uh i i can't it's funny well, i have i have three siblings um i'm the third kid of four and we all have different takes on you know uh the environment that we grew up in uh and and mine was is that other than it being confusing sometimes and otherwise it being Having a you know parents who weren't anxious to tell us what was going on in the world, um, I didn't. I kind of thought it was an adventure. I thought you know, the you know we moved. Uh, I had ten different. I had ten different homes by the time I was ten years old, and I thought that, that is confusing. Yeah, yeah, but I thought it was kind of cool. I lived in a my you know I had a bunch of step siblings. Uh, we lived in apartments. We lived uh, almost like on quasi farms we lived in the outskirts of towns. we lived in the middle of towns um, uh, different schools uh, yeah yeah i i went to you know i went to a, a one one kindergarten a first grade then a second grade and a third then a fourth third fourth fifth that yeah we yeah but i wasn't intimidated you i guess a type a garrulous personality as you say i I was able to size up what was going on pretty quick and some degree of, you know, a good sense of humor and some degree of confidence and a great amount of adopted independence, I think. Uh, if uh, if I was going to say there's a problem there, I traveled emotionally light. Mm-hmm. Meaning I didn't I didn't take a lot of the burdens of, of, of that confusion along with me. The older
1: and, kids maybe did a little more. Well I
2: think just because they were older and they had experienced uh, experienced more of it but by the you know uh, by the time I was 10 I thought it was kinda cool to have lived in as many different places um, that, I, that I lived in and then you know we were it's funny I lived in one house until I was um, 14, so 10 to 14. And that was the longest I had lived anywhere. <laughs> you know, four years in one place. And then we started moving again every year.
1: Yeah, I read somewhere you described yourself in school as, as a nerd, a spaz, painfully shy.
2: Well, uh, there, I was... Those aren't words that people associate with That's you. what I said. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was, there was, there, there's a, I was at combat, I think, with the reality of the home environment. I was, uh, other than this brief period of time when uh, we lived, my dad was not married, and it was just uh, of the four of us, my dad, my older brother, and my older sister. Your dad was a cook. Right? He, was, he was in the restaurant business, cook. yeah. Um, in the re- he was a chef, cook, ran the place uh, a lot of times. Outside for two and a half years where we sort of lived alone, I was ne- not necessarily anxious to get home. Because there was an unspoken tension uh, in the house there was there was always something that was not being said um, like how long we're going to live there or you know how how good you know uh dad and uh his wife are getting <laughs> getting along uh so I think the combat I had was was a liveliness and a distraction um, that was built on you know hanging out with other people and you know staying staying busy and uh Sort of like being in the entertainment business without realizing I was in the entertainment
1: business well, when did you realize that you wanted to entertain? when did
2: the acting bug uh, I was always a, I was always a guy who shouted out wise cracks during the slideshow, show uh, in you know at school, but when i was in was I was in high school and uh, had that well what are you going to do? what do you take in high school the biology uh, government world history to i ran the track team for a while with absolutely no enthusiasm whatsoever but then when uh, a friend of mine was was in the school play and i and i just i saw him do this and i just said where's what's this racket you are telling me we could come and do this here i thought it was only for parks department stuff or maybe you know <laughs> yeah. in, in the church group you might put on you know skits and stuff like that and and when i realized it was a uh, when i found out there was a classroom that had a stage in it, and you could take more than one class, and it wasn't babysitting. We had the, you know, I've, I've spoken about my teacher there, uh, a guy named Raleigh Farnsworth, who was a man of the theater, and that's what we did. So discovering that was, well, this was just more fun than fun is. Beats the hell out of every other class I'm taking there. It was, act, it was actually kind of a lot like a class in which the same skills uh were required of it then was to hang around at lunchtime and uh, you know and try to entertain the girls
1: and what about it particularly What about acting i mean it seems to me i mean i admire you you're the best of the best but uh anyone who can inhabit a character and become someone else
2: well you know, i i i don't I, I i was just doing purely on instinct but the instinct was to throw myself into it totally um, when when I was in a play or when I was performing, it 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 took up every moment of my day and every every brain cell. I was always thinking about um, what I was going to do or how what how uh, you know between learning the lines and and the excitement of just being there and getting ready to go on. Um, it was uh, a just I, I think there are people who who are actors and there are people who are not never will be. I just am one of those that was not was not uh, uh, self-conscious about it. Uh, it, was really sort of like champing at the bit in order to go be a part of something. What about the it.
1: reaction to it? Uh, did you, you must, there must have been some thrill associated with uh, being the, enterta- entertaining
2: people. Well, there was, there, was, it, there was just the excitement of knowing that anybody had shown up specifically to watch what you are in. And that, that division between the, the proscenium the audience was very powerful, whether they liked you or not. I mean, if they laughed, you know, I was in, in, like, South Pacific or something like yeah. that. That was really exciting. But I also had the same exact thrill of when I was a stage manager of the shows, because we were a part of this magic thing that was hidden from them. But you could hear them. You could feel the heat of an audience. You could la- actually feel the focus of their eyeballs on you. And if, if they started reacting, in a way, to something that you were doing, well, that's just, David, that's crack cocaine. It's crack <laughs> cocaine.
1: Did you, uh, And and you must have found a community then with people who you were, Acting with, working with crews. And I so would on. say
2: I found it. I found the tribe um, uh, that I think every person needs to belong to. That every person needs to seek out. There's, you know, there were there was there were people at church that were great. There were people that uh, that were you know populated the individual classes. There were people that I got along with, but I I felt as though I I had you know a secret tattoo or you know the shared same DNA with the people that were in the drama department. And when I went off to college, I didn't realize that even there, I was was playing, I thought there was some other test or rules. I didn't realize that the theater or dramatics was a discipline that you could pursue. I thought it was just something you instinctively did, you know, to hang out with funny people and and have a gas. And uh, after, you know, three years of doing that, I realized, oh, I can major in this. And I might be able to get a job as a follow-spot operator or as a stage carpenter or as a stage manager.
1: And that's kind of how you started out, right? When you yeah. were uh, in Ohio, you, you
2: were really crew. That we were, we were hired in order to change the sets over. And we were, those of us who were paid made about 48 bucks a week. Those of us who were not paid, thank you very much, well, did it for the professional experience because it was professional actors and we were in rep, rotating rep. And we were giving parts, small parts and, you know, you carried a spear. or I played Reynaldo in Hamlet, which is a part that's always cut for, for good <laughs> reasons. But in the course of that, you know, there, there were some people who were given more re, uh, responsibilities and, Between the company saving money by paying an intern fifty bucks a week as opposed to paying an equity actor you know two hundred fifty dollars a week, that was the difference between um, having the experience and and not. And I did that. I only did that. You you
1: already were married. You had a kid at that point.
2: I was not married, but yeah, my my son had been born, uh, and uh, uh, for the three years by the time we got married, uh, he was two, uh, and I had made the move. Uh, I had a card in my wallet that said I was a professional actor. And the, 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 the great friends I had, other members of the tribe, said, you don't go back to Sacramento, California. You go to New York. Well, shouldn't I go to Minneapolis? No. Shouldn't I go to Kansas? No. Should I go to Chicago? No one's here from Chicago. You come to New York. And that's what I did. And I had a kid and uh i had uh, we got married uh, uh when i when i was there and uh it was horrifying and scary um but you make your peace with that kind of uh, new york was a very different place in 1977 78 yeah. you make your peace with that that
1: was in son of sam times uh, we had that yeah. we,
2: it was kind of like walking in walking into scorsese's taxi drivers <laughs> is what it was um but I viewed it as, as you know, I think, as you're as you're figuring out this stuff. You have these vibrant. You, know, you were talking about, you know, when you were doing, you know, local elections. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine doing anything else. And, right. And the combat, uh, the battle comes in the daily, uh, the daily seeking of uh, of purchase. You know, there were days you woke up, you had nothing to do. Nothing. There were no auditions. Maybe you could get together. Did you have to something?
1: work on other stuff to, just to support yourself? No.
2: Luckily, brand. I had made just enough cash, money, in order to pay enough of the rent. And I, because uh, I was a professional actor, I was on unemployment. So I had 25 weeks of, of salary and 25 weeks of minimum unemployment payments, and that was just enough to, to eke out uh, a living. And was there any point where you just said, damn, I'm good? I, no. I, can, I no. can really do this. No. Um, here's what I thought, um, and we actually talked about this, uh, all of us young you know, Turks that were, that were out doing it at the same time. I said, look, we are as good as 50% of the people. Oh, no, excuse me. Let's go back is what we said. We said, we are better than 50% of the people in in the audition. Just better. That's that's a level of cockiness that Mm -hmm. goes on. They're fine, they're good, we're better. I am just as good as 40% of of the people. Just as good. I can't touch the remaining 10% because they're geniuses. (laughs) And they just do stuff, they're on a, another astral plane.
1: So the odds... Were there people who you remember from that time who were in that category, who went on to become...
2: Uh, everybody who had a job <laughs> that, you know, that I didn't have? Um, they, I, no, because I didn't, I didn't view myself as being in competition with, uh, with the likes of them. Because they had the jobs... And they didn't even have to audition. It was a, literally, it was like an odds process. Mm-hmm. So 50, so you, the odds are better if you think you're better than 50%. That's confidence. The odds are still kind of in your favor if you think you're as good as the 40%. So timing ended up being everything. They need a guy my age with my voice and my hair and my eyes and my, my build. If they need that, I've got really, I've got Better than forty percent. And this was all auditions for stage roles. Stage roles. I never could get a. I, I auditioned for one Maxwell House coffee commercial, but I yeah. didn't know what the process was, so they kept saying, uh, "Slate it." I'm sorry, slate <laughs> it. <laughs> what slate? I don't understand. Slate what? Say your name. I remember that coming. Oh, all right. I did not get that job. No, uh, this was and so all you didn't.
1: You weren't thinking that you know, someday I'm going to be like
2: a mega movie star. God, no. I was hoping someday I could you know move into a better crappy apartment. That, that's that's all you're going for. No, the, I would say the 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 thing I had in my pocket that uh, uh, was an advantage was complete obliviousness to. Any other possibility other than, gee, I hope I can get this job doing um, uh, high button shoes at the Zanesville Playhouse over the summertime because it's going to pay close to two hundred eighty bucks a week. I can make that. I can stretch that. I want to ask you about
1: another passion that you developed in your childhood. You you just uh, released a book, a great book of short stories called Uncommon Type. There is a story in that book called "The Past is Important to Us," oh, yeah. which is a great, great book about time travel. But uh, it struck me, uh, just thinking about your career and your story, that the past is important to you. That you are very focused on history, uh, and you know, you obviously you're very focused on the history of World War II, no, the history it, yeah. of uh, uh, of the '60s. W-
2: what attracted you to that? When did you start? Down that when road. I started reading for pleasure, my, I I I I don't know if it's I don't know if it's proper to say this, but I had a very vivid imagination in all other respects of school pursuit. I was you know I was I in the theater. I was quote unquote an actor. That's a that, that is a lot of making things up that have to be rooted somehow in a concrete reality. So I read nonfiction because it really happened. I read non—I mean, even if it was books like Leon Uris, who wrote like Armageddon or Mila Eighteen or Exodus Trinity, you know, or uh, Arthur Haley, who wrote about hotels and airports and and uh, car manufacturing. But I read a lot of uh, biographies and autobiographies because that was better than anything that you could possibly make up. I lived in a make-up uh, in a in a not, in a, in a world. fiction okay. world, make a make-believe world. Um, and so I was not profoundly moved uh, by an awful lot of novels, unless they were set in some brand of concrete reality. Mm-hmm. And that's always been my my interest in reading. I re- I still read about World War II for pleasure, and the space program. And uh, there's a couple of really great books that came out of uh, that are in then there about the 1939 Worlds. Fair. Yes, you, you describe it in extraordinary detail. There. Yeah, you can get some good maps of uh, of, uh, of what was there, but here, here, because I believe, and I have seen over and over again, is that vanity of vanity, all is vanity, nothing new is under the sun. Human behavior has demonstrated itself in a cyclical manner uh, in the form of history, and when you when, you re- when you're not involved in the nostalgia of a period, but in the human behavior of a period, it all folds right into what you and I are going through today. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Well, first of all, what, what, what about that World War II uh,
1: experience, generation? You know, I remember we're about the same age. I remember when John F. Kennedy came to a little housing development where I grew up in New York uh, to campaign in 1960. I was a little boy. Uh, And thinking back at it, this was a housing development for returning war veterans. Mm. And everyone there had just experienced this of everyone coming together to repel fascism, defend democracy. And there was a sense that anything was possible, Mm. that you could overcome any obstacle. Uh, And I assume that's part
2: of what attracts you to... That generation. There was a paradox that I was aware of from a very early age is that there were two versions of the war. One was the movie war, uh, the TV war, that, that ongoing mythic celebration of what the myth was with the right kind of music and the right kind of triumph and maps and stuff like that. But then there was the other one that was displayed by every single caregiver, every adult that was in, in my world, uh, which was they talked about the war... Um, in very personal terms, their lives, in fact, were divided up into three very specific acts. Before the war, when he talked about life before the war, their their lives were simple, Um, their lives were also dangerous because they could get, you died of pneumonia before Mm -hmm. World War II. You could have a tooth abscess that could kill you. There was a real difference between having 10 cents in the, in, the, in the cookie jar and having 45 cents in the cookie jar because that was an entire meal for a family of four, 45 cents. That was before the war. And when they say, well, you know, of course, that was before the war because during the war was this huge cranial shift of their vision of the world, how big it was, how tight it was, and the forces that were out there that effectively altered their daily lives. If it wasn't Literally, leaving all your, my dad left his, and his brother left their Willows, California, which is just a, you know, a farm community that could be anywhere in America, and they went to the South Pacific. How, how does a farm kid get from the South Pacific? So geographically it altered, and from the moment the war began, really say 1939, to VE Day in 1945, there was no clue as to how long it was going to last. Their lives were in absolute stasis for, let's just say, six years. Yeah. And for, to go through that for six years, that, that's an extraordinary uh, acceptance of a brand of fate that you have no control over. You might die. You might never get back. You might, it might be 1952, and guess what? You're still trying to take Saipan or liberate the Netherlands.
1: You capture a little of this in the story. Yeah, there's Christmas a, Eve... Christmas Eve, 1953. 53, which really gives you a yeah. flavor of what you're talking so about. So
2: seeing these grown-ups talk about it in ways... but Because they're no longer... They weren't old folks talking about it. They were young folks talking about it. I, I always had this sense of those years as being a, a, a predominantly weighted time for them, in which fate was, they, they, they had no control over their lives. They had to wait for him. And they talked about it. Well, of course, that was during the war when there were no answers to any questions. And then after the war, of course, it was like, we're here and we share that burden with uh, so many other people, there's no reason to talk about it too much because everybody right. has, speaks the same common language.
1: And yet it did create a sense of community in that that was one common element that sort of brought everybody from all parts of the country
2: uh, together, my dad had skills that he never would have had um, because of the war. Mm-hmm. He had, he became a machinist, so he learned hydraulics and, and stuff like that. Um, but he also had that grander world vision of uh, of places uh, that where he go and sites that he had seen. I it's I, I actually have you know an example of uh, of his VE uh, mail. Um, that he's writing a letter to his mom that says absolutely nothing, other than, "Here I am. I'm not in the place I was before. I'm at a different <laughs> place now. And some guys down there are talking and going to uh, taking a rocket to the moon. But I don't think there's any Japs on the moon, so I don't think we'll go there anyway." Write to you next, and that's the, you know, and that's that's a letter that 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 type of um, both isolation uh, at the same time of transportation that goes along. Um, it's uh, it, it affected them all. It affected it affected the people that I was closest.
1: Your uh, your work, not just your uh, acting work, but your uh, documentary work, some of the stories in this book, sort of capture it, it's almost uh, the, the in sepia tones uh, that generation that era. Uh, how does it compare to where we are today? You said earlier that there are lessons that you can draw from history.
2: Well, I, I we are. There are times, I think, when we have a national consciousness of permanence uh, and other times of great uh, tr- um, uh, transience, where we feel as though there are times of, hey, things are going good, and all of our institutions are working according to the contract that we have with them, and our popular culture is reflecting back to us a, um, a contentment and uh, a sense of accomplishment. Uh, certainly in the early 1960s, that was an awful lot of what, what was on TV, and was in the movies, and yeah. the nature of what we, uh, what we heard uh, in all of popular culture. And right now that I think the, the consensus is, is that those social contracts have all been broken. That we are often uh, lied to, that we are often kept from, uh, kept from knowledge, and then there is and there's a reason to be outraged, and there is a reason to be afraid. And there's a reason to, to look at outsiders as an upsetting of a status quo that really wasn't working for us in the first place. And a lot of that is comes from uh, signals that are that are that are sent to us by, you know, I think organizations or or institutions with, with an agenda. You know, I remember um, growing up, we there was no such thing as littering. You just threw your garbage out. You know, I remember dumping garbage out of cars or, you know, what have you, because it wasn't until Lyndon, Lady Bird Johnson came along with an idea of keep America beautiful and, and, don't, and, and stop littering. When everybody stopped littering, guess what? Our cities were a little bit cleaner, and so were the right. highways and whatnot. And I think we're back to littering. I think we're back to this concept of there's somebody, somebody else is responsible for this, not me. Somebody's job is to clean this up. Uh, somebody, some, some, some uh, aspect of our tax dollars will, will, will clean the side of the highway or whatnot. I, it, 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 I think that we are in a period where that brand of, uh, of uh, uh, transience is it, it them, you know? it's scary. Like, mean, It's like Springsteen says, there's a darkness on the edge of town. You mm-hmm. know. At the same time he, you, know, you want to you have an understanding of we take care of our own but um, there, there, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a, a, a type of of. Well, I just, I, I think that we're more afraid right now, and I'm, I'm not sure that we know what we're afraid of.
1: Well, is part of it that we're being told by not just institutions but leaders to be afraid. Well, now, I mean that's a, the, elephant in the room. Um, you know, we have a president who's got, who's got a very sharp edge to him. Does that contribute? that sense?
2: From a guy who is a, you know, lay historian who does it, here's Daniel Daniel Moynihan Mm -hmm. had this great saying which was you are entitled to Mm -hmm. your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. And that's not true anymore. Everybody has their own facts. Uh, And they cling to them. Sometimes they're insane conspiracy theories. Uh, but other times there are interpretations of people's motives. And other times it's like two times two equals four. There's not an accountant in the world that doesn't understand two times two does in fact equal four. That's a fact. But as soon as you apply that to a measure of ozone in the air or a loss of uh, of ice uh, in the polar ice, well, suddenly those facts it, two times two doesn't equal four anymore. It means there's something else. You can question literally the math. Um, One of the institutions that uh, that people relied on when we
1: were kids and for some time uh, was the news media mm-hmm.
2: uh, at, to deliver those
1: estate. facts. The, the fourth, fourth estate, exactly. And
2: what are the four? Help me out here. There's <laughs> the there's government. Yes. There's the military. There's the, there's uh, there's uh, religion. And then there's the press. Yeah, I, was
1: grew, I grew up as a reporter, uh, so uh, I
2: didn't care about the other three estates. Oh, right, I was okay. The, I was in well, the fourth estate. Those estates that give order to our lives, that dictate our yeah. behaviors and keep us secure and establish the, uh, the contracts we have both with our neighbors, with our town, and, and with our nation and the rest of the world.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. You just completed a film that's going to be released uh, later this month called The Post, about The Washington Post, and a particular episode in its... Uh, storied history uh, that went to the publication of the Pentagon papers, secret papers that or, that revealed what was going on inside the government, and in many cases uh, things that uh, were uh, hidden from the American people about uh, judgments that were made. It was very, very uh, controversial it was tell me deal. tell me about the a big deal yes we 'll keep it there yeah. uh, tell me. Uh, Tell me about that film well, uh, it, you did it, with the Steven Spielberg Steven
2: Spielberg directed it, and it's uh, really the story of how Kay Graham came to be Kay Graham and it just happened to all publisher of the publisher of The Washington Post as well as Newsweek and television stations and it all just happened to occur in the same week uh, and in order to be not just the the figurehead but also the owner and the publisher and the person who made the decisions. Catherine Graham had to decide whether or not to print stories about the Pentagon Papers, perhaps on the threat of imprisonment right uh, the The New York Times, who had run uh, who had already run these huge stories on it, was shut down in fact is it enjoined what is the word enjoined uh, yeah. they were enjoined from publishing anymore by the government, by the Justice Department. they were shut down by agents of the President of the United States under the auspices it's treasonous to to publish this report that essentially just tells what happened since 1947. And I think that I think the, the actual report was it was already five years old uh, that it existed, and there wasn't secret plans in there. There wasn't battle plans. No one's lives were going to be lost right. um, by the publishing of the papers. It was just like, how did we get involved in Vietnam? It was it was uh, it was uh, uh, asked to be prepared by the the Secretary of Defense. Yes. Um, Robert McNamara, because he says we're in this mess. How did we get here? And it was just the story of how we ended up in Vietnam. Uh, the Washington Post found their own copies of uh, enough of the pages in order to in order to print their own uh, stories on the Washington uh, on the Pentagon Papers. But the threat was: if we do, are we committing treason? If we do, is the Justice Department going to lock us up because we're? uh we are we're we're, uh, we're committing a crime uh based on what the government was saying so the assault on the first amendment was pretty basic the assault was you could take i think you could almost take away the rest of the constitution but as long as you have that first amendment yeah. everything else could probably be defined by it freedom of speech freedom of assembly freedom of the press yeah um, reason it's the first amendment it, yeah they came up with that number one the other stuff they oh we should think about that yes. too but those those three things alone and you had a president of the united states who is trying to shut down literally trying to keep from publishing uh um, richard nixon huh? richard nixon was and that's what tyrants do that's what crappy communist dictators do you know in uh, on the the smaller countries on the other side this is what banana republic uh, dictators do they shut down the newspapers they keep them from printing whatever stories it is you know i I think it's interesting david because the questions you know as we go on talk about this movie it's all about fake news right there's always been fake news uh, when they wrote the Constitution of the United States, there were, there were daily newspapers that printed you know, one side of the story without any regard to what the truth is. They have agendas, and they've always gone out and tried to uh, to tell only their side of what the story is, or it's sometimes outli- outright lie. You know, Frank Sinatra fought against fake news for crying out loud. Between gossip and, and uh, the real other the tool, types,
1: the, uh, the tools of delivery though are more sophisticated now, more
2: pervasive, and sometimes hard to track. Well, it comes back down to uh, which, what facts are you going to choose? Uh, if you if you if you read about like for, I just heard this thing on National Public Radio, the history of the Pizzagate story, the Pizza mm-hmm. Pizzagate story. It's madness. Tony's it. story, trying to link Hillary or linking Hillary
1: Clinton to a fictitious plot around sex trafficking, sex of trafficking
2: of a young kid based in a pizzeria in
1: Washington, and it's some some guy came up there believing that story. Two and a half
2: million people read it. Some guy came up there with a gun, and you go back. You go back to the news organizations that that published or broadcast or talked about that story as though it was a fact nearly resulted in a guy with a gun shooting up a bunch of people in a pizzeria in suburban Washington, D.C. That's an example of there was no fact there. So the idea that there, and and you can go, look, who was the guy that ran the Chicago Tribune during World War Colonel McCormick? Colonel McCormick. All right. You know, he was... Uh, he, he, he printed his own versions of the facts, and yeah. that was
1: in... Well, that was a tradition in American journalism earlier. As I said, it's it's just the pervasiveness of it now, given the tools that are available with social media, yeah. the, 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 by, the polarization on cable television and so on. But uh, this movie, what is your hope? What is Steven Spielberg's hope? Uh,
2: in- I can't speak for Steven. He's the boss. Yes. Uh, well, uh, well, I'll take yours. Okay. Uh, the... The point that it takes is is this, is that we are not the United States of America without the First Amendment. Freedom of speech means you get to say whatever you want to say outside of screaming fire in a crowded uh, crowded theater because people can die. That's not freedom of speech. That's a crime. Freedom of assembly means you get to get together and hang out all you want to with whoever you want to. Burning down a synagogue is not going to be allowed uh, by that. But short of you know, committing crimes and assaults, you get, to, you get to assemble with any group you want to, any religion. Freedom of the press requires the same sort of absolute that you, we live in a country where we are able to publish and anybody who gets to say whatever they want to based on, I think, an individual contract that your organ has with society as a whole. If your contract is, we're going to we're going to not only get the truth, but we're going to double and triple check it, and we're going to go a far distance so that by the time you read what our uh, what our what our, what our findings are, you can have uh, uh, you can have a huge amount of, uh, uh, of confidence. That due diligence has been done, then you can decide whether or not it's important. So it it is a current issue,
1: as you know. Oh well, it's right because up, right the president out of because the months. president uh, has targeted news organizations that have printed things that he finds inconvenient, believe uh, inconvenient. I believe he calls Daniel. CNN fake news. He he did indeed, and the Washington Post and the Washington Post uh, and other news organizations as well. Uh, how much does that concern you?
2: Well, it, as an American, it concerns me. <laughs> Because it's it's monkeying around with our Constitution. It's relatively obvious, I think, is what what you know what's what is trying to go trying to go for. When you tear down these institutions to a level of say you can't believe anything that is in any of them, that raises the stock of those agenda-filled other institutions or whatnot so that if you can't believe them well that means you get to believe some of the other stuff that is in these and so what is happening is a dilution a dilution of the great you know they're throwing dirt and oil into a, a you know a bucket of a bucket of water so it all becomes undrinkable after a while and when conspiracy theorists ends up having the same amount of purchase as 27 you know uh Uh, reporters who are trying to get to the bottom of some records that exist somewhere, trying to determine what was said about Vietnam in in 1956 and 1947 and 1963. Well, then you're monkeying around with, I think, what the United States of America has been based upon, which is the great freedom to say what you want, assemble with who you want to, and read and and be, be informed by those people that you want to turn to. Now, because we're not, you know, I think what the current administration is doing, I don't know that they're saying we have to shut them down so they don't publish anymore. That would, that would
1: break. Although the president did muse about uh, pulling the license of NBC. Which he has
2: not, which he does not have the power to. There is some question about this antitrust. There is that, there is that. But he's doing, what is happening is something that is more subtle and more insidious and I think has more um, uh, fingerprints from other total, <laughs> other governments in the past mm-hmm. who have said, "Look, we can't shut them down because that will cause outrage, but we can denigrate them. We can we can uh, we can call them names. We can tell we can tell people that they those are not the facts." What's, that's what he's saying.
1: You uh, you got into uh, you, was, were yeah. criticized by some back at the beginning of the administration. I think. I shared your view when you said I don't. I'm not rooting for the president to fail. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I thought back to at the beginning of the Obama administration when I was in the administration. Uh, Rush Limbaugh said I'm rooting for the president to fail, and I thought particularly at a time of national emergency that was a terrible thing to say. And so I felt you owe the next president that same presumption. We're now ten months in. Uh, where do you think? How would you evaluate him?
2: Well. When, when we were at, back in the golden months of last October, you know, before the election, you know, they, people stick microphones in your face and say, uh, mm-hmm. you, think, you think Donald Trump's going to get elected? And I said, I just, I was one of the cases, no way, you don't, el- you don't elect a guy like that president of the United States. And I thought that all the way up, and I, I said something, you know, glib or flip, you know, something like, when, if that's going to happen, well, you know what, then aliens are going to land on my front lawn and dinosaurs are going to wear capes. It was a silly answer for something that was impossible. But Have if you I checked your lawn lately? Uh, well, if I had said, if I had said instead, if that happens, we're going to, neo-Nazis are going to hold torchlight parades in, in, uh, in uh, Charlottesville, and... Uh, Pocahontas jokes will be, uh, will be said in front of the Navajo code talkers. That would have been just as, as hellacious an imagination, I think, as, as what we have.
1: Do you, uh, how, what role do you think the, the entertainment industry played in, uh, in putting Donald Trump in a position to become president
2: of the United States? Well, I think there's an us versus them kind of thing. I think a lot of times there's preaching to the choir that, that, uh, that can come out of the... Uh, the Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood machinery. I think a, a lot of times stories are, you know, incredibly easy in order to, uh, in order to uh, show how good guys always win. Uh, but I think it's also part of the, you know, of uh, of, of the and the and the uh, a bit of the of the divide. Um, but, but let me just say, it's ironic to
1: me because if not for the apprentice and that vehicle that he had. Uh, he likely wouldn't be president of the United States today. And yet uh, he also benefits from the, uh, from the disapprobation of the media, of, of, the, uh, of the entertainment industry, I should say, Hollywood. You know, I
2: watched the Emmys, and it was yeah. a real beatdown on, oh, yeah. on Donald yeah. Trump. And, and, my
1: guess, and my thought was, boy, this is probably helps him with his support. Oh, it
2: does. I, th- I think so. Because at the end of the day, it's dogpiling. It's a degree of cheap shots. I will say, I think we have to admit this, though. Something, something profound came out of that election, and that is the rules were smashed. The rules no longer applied. You could a man, a candidate, could say outrageous things, and not be penalized by it when it came down to the voting booth. And you can look at it as though some aspect of it, there was a national referendum that had had enough of this ongoing. Political continuum that was always say the right things, always yeah. feed your base, never ne- always say just glittering generalities about who uh, whoever uh, anybody because you don 't want to offend and that is translated I think to is you don 't want to tell the truth about what your opinions are here 's a guy. You can't stop telling. No one no, ever says, "Yeah, I wish he would speak his mind." Yeah, yeah, and and you know, what could come out of that? Well, what good could, could come out of that is that on whatever other side of the of the of the political divide, you'll start hearing people speak their minds. Uh, and unfortunately, it seems as though the only people who have done that so far are folks who are no longer running for office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who don't or aren't yeah. part of the who aren't part of the. Uh, that political combine that uh, you know is a business in and of itself, show business for ugly people.
1: You've talked about yourself as a lay historian here. Uh, you gave an answer in an interview recently about where you think we're going, uh, and because there is a, a there is a sense of unsettlement of un of unease about where we are. In the sense that well this we've crossed some Rubicon, and we can't get back. And you quoted a, a book uh, that Jay Winnick wrote in uh, mm. about. Uh, uh, oh yes, called uh, uh, April, 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 April eighteen sixty-five. Yeah, and uh, tell me about that. What was the point you were making? Because it seemed to be saying you were we should play the long game here, oh, and that things will change.
2: again. Yes, yes. That what he he puts forward is in the, in regard to the question of slavery, for fifteen years, twenty years, for most of the well, all the you know, up until up until eighteen sixty, the issue had become so pervasively divided, that you were not allowed to speak to If you were pro-slavery, you could not speak to the abolitionists. And if you were abolitionists, you couldn't have anything to do. Compromise was evil. Compromise, uh, any sort of, like, voting process, any sort of discussion. Not that there was an awful lot of compromise you could have by keeping an entire race of people in, you know, in bondage (laughs) in order to make them work in the fields. Right. Um, But there had been an uncompromising quality in which uh, all, all of the political society had become binary. If you were a zero, there was no way you were a one, and if you were a one, there was no way you were a zero. That sounds a little familiar and yeah, and what came out what came out of it the, the you know six years of strife and the, the i mean we more more people were killed and more property was destroyed in uh, the Civil War than all the other uh, American uh, involvements I, that, that 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 ends up that ends up being history what i in all of the history that I've read <laughs> and all of the you know the various I don't know, all the various things that I have uh, tried to turn into nonfiction entertainment, you do come back to this other thing, <clears throat> which is the power of our immediate foundation. John, uh, I, he, it, some of this began because when I was doing Philadelphia, yes, in Philadelphia, and so I'm walking around trying to get skinny because you know we're playing, yeah, playing somebody who is suffering from the great pandemic of our age. Um, we visited the family. We visited Independence Hall, uh, which is a great place to be. In the yeah. middle city, you, know, yeah. you go, the Liberty Bell, there it is, and you got the, 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 the Supreme Court was in this room, and the House of Representatives were in this room, and the Senate was up in this room. And the, the the park ranger, the guy in the literally the green uniform, the smoky bear hat, he's, we're in the, in the Senate chambers. We were the only ones there. It was a cold day, it was a weekday. And uh, he said, and on that spot there, literally the physical spot, John Adams was sworn in as the second president of the United States. And for the first time in recorded human history, rule of a nation changed hands without to a non-relative without bloodshed or death and my head exploded because i hadn't put it together that yeah. way the great thing about our democracy is not us putting people into power it's taking people out of power yeah it's removing them egypt egypt was a country that had did not have a voice in who ran it any more than they had uh, they could uh, they could stop the sun from rising well they put in one group and what they couldn't figure out is how to Take the second step was to remove the people that you want to take out of office because they had ended in a revolution. It was bad. But in America, we've done it again and again and again and again. Yeah, which I think we take for granted. We do, because even right now, it's like, oh, he, he, like, oh there's, a, there's an impeachment thing that's going around there. Yeah, what do you think about that? I'd I say we have something better in store than that. We have an election coming up in, in less than a year now. Yeah. 2018 is going to send a message that is going to reverberate much more than any Senate hearings or congressional stuff that's going to go by. That, That election in 2018 is going to prove one of two things. We will continue along and we will have the government we deserve, or a lot of people are going to show up and be motivated to vote in order to send out the waves and say we are not satisfied with the way things are going right now. And The great—you go to any other nation in the world, and you find out that in the United States, how much of our electorate turns out to vote in any given year? Yeah. Forty percent?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. More in a presidential race,
2: but— More in a presidential race, but the real important—so if there is a turnout that says we're not satisfied with this, hey, baby— that, that, that's, even, that's even better than going through the machinations. Of- well, the other
1: thing, and I've said this, is I think uh, hey, impeachment, impeachment is, uh, is a tool that should be used very carefully because if it becomes commonplace to say, I dislike who's in office, so we're just going to impeach them. And I understand there are provocations, but there is a system in place. There are people who are investigating things. They will either lead to something or they won't. But if it becomes a casual tool... Yeah, I think it's a it, it's bad it's bad for the country in the long run, and it's one more institution that will be abused. You know, so uh, that you know. I, now we can plan. plan uh, there are plenty of people who will debate both of us
2: uh, on this point. Uh, well, if crimes have been committed, yeah, I get it. But you know, right. we don't have to. There's a there. You it's, it's a marathon. There's a longer faith that uh, that we can have, and everything goes in. Spurts, you know, stops and starts. Sometimes you take one step forward, two steps back, but other times you take one step back and two steps forward, and that means you just keep moving forward a little
1: bit. I have to ask you that the, uh, that the, uh, about investigative reporting, because it's also shining a bright light in the corners of other corridors of power in Hollywood has come under that scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen some real giants of, of your industry, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, and others, uh, who have been, uh, who have been, uh, I guess, exposed is the wrong word, but who have been uh, identified as sexual harassers, sexual abusers, or at least there are allegations yeah, of that.
2: Allega- yeah, call
1: them A- predators. Allegations, predators, predators. predators, yeah. pred- predators. Uh, how... Uh, pervasive is that in, in, in the industry itself and how complicit is everyone who has been around it all these years and, and not said anything?
2: About well, it? that's a good question. I mean, uh, the, anybody who had like re- very specific knowledge of what was going on, they'll have to answer questions about, you know, how complicit were they. Um, I mean, you saw a
1: lot of stars, people you've acted with. Rightly so. Came, yeah, but they came forward after these very brave women who were not prominent and who were not powerful told their stories to the New York Times, told them to Ronan Farrow in yeah, 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 New yeah, Yorker.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, <clears throat> there are, I think there's a number of reasons people go into this line of work that I'm in. Essentially trying to come up with stories that people will pay to see. One is because it's less, just ridiculous amounts of fun. Uh, two is, if you can make it stick, it can be a pretty good living, you know, and you get to travel the world and see interesting things. Some people do it for power. They just want to have a degree of power because that's the thing that gives them credence. It's something, you know, it's a, on one hand, it's a, a, a parking space with your name on it uh, and you take it to another extreme. It's the ability... Uh, to beat up on underlings and say things like, "So you want a job? You want to keep your job? Well, then you're going to have to fulfill these other demands I have about you that are uh, that are of a sexual nature. That is pure It's a, you know to the to the degree of assault. There are people like that, without a doubt, in Hollywood. I don't think it is as uh, it's it's not common core, but without a doubt, it's widespread. Because human nature comes down to a lot of times, those people in power have it for that very that 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 ability, that access, in order to uh, in order to be a sexual predator. Well, we've seen it in politics. Uh, well, it's we've everywhere. Seen it in business, but you know, part of it also is goes like, look, we are in a lot of ways. All of us are. We all left town and joined the circus, and the circus is glamorous in a lot of ways, and. Uh, there is there is camaraderie and there is, you know, there is there is sex and there's attraction and there's boyfriends and girlfriends and there's flirting and that's always been part of theirs onset affairs. There's no law against right. that. But this goes far beyond that. This, this goes much farther beyond that because it ends up being a swaying of influence and it becomes part of the marketplace. It becomes when it is inherent into the workforce that you join that you have to succumb to a degree of sexual harassment in order to keep your job. Uh, that well, yeah, when that happens, the only thing you can, you can say is, number one, uh, I hope the victims are, come out and, and, and tell all sorts of stories, everything, tell the truth about what goes on, and that the repercussions land exactly as they should.
1: Will, uh, uh, were you, first of all, were you surprised by some of these revelations?
2: Uh, sur- I'm surprised by the, 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 uh, um, the overtness of it, yeah, sure. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Am I surprised at some of the personalities involved? Uh, not Harvey. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a he had a he had a way of doing business, and you know, zero sum game, negotiation stuff that would would not make you surprised to have him be one of those kind of guys that does that in the workplace. Um, others are just like, well, I you know. There's a, there's a time and place for decorum and ethics and you blew it you know there, there's that as well do you think that um, there'll be scripts written about this, about these women who lived in terror or will Hollywood protect itself from that oh no, I think, I think there's going to be quite a bit that's going to come out about it and um, here, the, here's what's going to be an interesting test is, is that going to be salacious titillating, shocking outrageous in order to draw viewers? Or is it going to be human and realistic and authentic in its details in order to say what happened? In some ways, you can already see, you know, the... I'm sure there's already stories in development that are going to be based on the Harvey Weinstein or whatever. And is that going to be as... What's the word I'm looking for? Is that going to be as pure an examination of the theme as somebody else taking along and saying, well, let's fictionalize it and turn it into something so that we're not, we're not necessarily dealing with the specifics of any one person, but can get down to the specifics of uh, what it really did to uh, the human beings Do well. you
1: think films like that, or let's talk about Philadelphia, which sure. was a, a brave film in 1993, uh, do you think they have the, uh, the power to change things? Do you think Philadelphia hastened... Uh, an understanding of age.
2: I think it did, both in what it accomplished and what it failed to accomplish. Uh, the, the big, the big, the throwing deep in the end zone on Philadelphia was that it was going to compete in the open marketplace. You can make a small movie for $400,000 and you can play in every film festival in the world and only, only 62,000 people will see it. It will be a profoundly good movie to them. But when you're going out and you're going to compete in your local marketplace for a broad audience to come in and deal with something that is ripped, kind of ripped right out of today's headlines, um, you, have to, you have to do it in a manner that it's going to be somehow so approachable, authentic, and glamorous in order to attract an audience who simply wants to be entertained. If they become enlightened at the same time, uh, good for you. But there's throughout all of American history... And uh, w- Which I have said, a gentleman's agreement with Gregory Peck in 1952 was about anti-Semitism that no one had ever touched before. The best years of our lives was about the emptiness that an entire generation faced when they came back from the war. And how in the world do they get on with that? You can go, the grapes of wrath. I mean, even though the ending was absolutely nothing like uh, John Steinbeck wrote, it ended up being... Uh, entering into the natural consciousness and changing that consciousness because you could not argue with the theme that it was examining. And uh, uh, Hollywood will do that all the time. It won't always land on it. It won't always make it happen. It might cop out periodically, but there's always going to be something coming down the pike that is meant to, to do it. The difference now is it might be on you know, you might be on a streaming service uh, as opposed to playing in your local cinema, because the, uh, you know, <laughs> the superheroes are filling up all the cinemas.
1: Do you, uh, uh, do you feel that uh, when you look at roles, do you look for, do you look for scripts? Are you excited by scripts that have that power that might? Or did you just look at them?
2: No, there's an awful lot of, there's a lot of like preaching to the choir. There's an awful lot of of stories that people want to tell, and there's no surprises in it. And they're kind of like polemics, if I'm using the word polemic. Yeah, right. Uh They're just kind of like treatises on something, and uh, uh, there's nothing new, there's nothing unique. And I I find them kind of, uh, a lot of times, they're void of the gray areas of, of human behavior. Um, there's always a, often time there's a specific bad guy and there's a specific good guy and a lot of times there are no good guys or bad guys they are just people who are poorly motivated or wrong. Uh, 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 but I, the, I the things I look for is is I was very lucky because of the one of the, when I went to Cleveland for the first year, um, we uh, I held a torch or maybe it was a spear during the entire scene of Hamlet's uh, advice to the players. So every night I heard, speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounce it, you're trippingly over the tongue. And inside that, he says, your job is to hold the mirror up to nature. It means you have to reflect back true human behavior, how we think, how we act, and the great paradoxes that are in all of our decisions. That is what I seek out in whatever it is I decide to go on and do. Even even if you're, you know, searching for the Da Vinci Code or you know, uh, trying to determine who's an angel. And who's yeah, I kind of
1: I think in uh, in your industry as well as in politics, where I worked for all those years, authenticity means so much. The ability to be true, as you suggest, uh, is almost more important than than anything else.
2: Right, and. How true is your average photo op in politics, in which bales of hay have been realistically arranged in front of a barn on a riser with TV lights on it and a collection of citizens or Put in the back, and they're all in different dress, and they all have that. And someone comes on and talks about their intense desire to help the American family.
1: So, I'm, I'm going to ask you is that a leading question? No, no, I'm, a leading I'm just saying there? the stage. No, you're and right. No, it, no, no, no. But, but that doesn't mean that the people who ultimately succeed are the people who break through that and can make
2: a real connection. Well, right. It, it ends up being of what are you saying and what is, uh, what is, what, what is actually the, the authentic message that you're trying, what is the authentic change you're trying to bring? what is the enlightenment that you're for what what I do what are you actually what are we actually trying to you know tell the the tell an, any audience that comes in and watches a movie you know you want them to feel as though they got their money's worth that's just business that's the corporate side of it but the artistic side of it is you want the you want them to feel as though they were a part of something much larger than themselves and have a slightly new perspective on life as we know it whether they're seeing a movie that was Takes place in you know the 1700s, or you're seeing a movie that took place in 1971.
1: Well, I will say that uh, polling has gotten a bad rap, uh, so I tell you this advisedly. But uh, you know, every poll I look at says Tom Hanks is the most trusted. Tom Hanks is the most uh, uh, beloved and popular. Uh, actor. So
2: right guys? Give, give me a big huzzah. Bro. Huzzah. So you must be due, not allowed so, to so say you, anything.
1: you've made that connection for a very long time and uh that's an enormous accomplishment.
2: Well I don't discount that. I I, I, I don't I don't that, that actually that says something that is I uh, that I this way I take it is that um my my countenance if I should be so bold uh uh matches my choices you know i think i I think that's that when you get to this point where you realize you're a bit of a commodity and i realize i am you know from a business perspective and the people who want me to do business with them there i I understand i'm bringing into it the sum of everything i've ever done everything i've ever said uh any reaction any audience has ever had and so probably don't screw it up now. One, don't screw it up. But at the same time, you must stretch it somehow, mm-hmm. because otherwise all you are is a bottle of Coca-Cola. Right. You need to provide some other brand of nourishment and healthiness. And so if those kind of very flattering polls that people say they say, what what better thing could you hear about yourself other than, hey, I trust you. Yes, that's uh, that's about the highest praise you can get from anybody. And I you know, there's, I got to tell you, there's times I've lied through my teeth, uh, sometimes in promoting movies that even I knew weren't any good. (laughs) But you can still get into that an understanding of sometimes you take a shot, sometimes you don't. But, you know, countenance matching up with the the, the quality of the choices you make. um, That's, uh, man, outside of longevity, uh, that's the only standard you can hold yourself to.
1: Well, Tom Hanks, it's,
2: Pleasure to be I'm with you. I'm exhausted, David. Have I <laughs> pontificated
1: enough? <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna give you a rest. No, it's it's really so good to be with
2: you, and I. Oh, thank your you. Time. I, I enjoyed talking to you. Nice. <laughs> now, I got to get my memorabilia back.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to the Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.